0: This episode is sponsored by Villanova University's Sustainable Engineering Graduate Program. Gain tangible takeaways and sustainable business best practices that you can immediately apply to your organization. Offered online and on campus. Visit VUSustainableEngineering.com.
1: From Green Biz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower, still social distancing here at home in Oakland, California. On this week's edition, a new tool for climate scenario modeling, inside the Green Recovery Lobby, the wisdom of John Elkington, and the bottom line on diaper recycling. We're giving you the straight poop This week on
2: 350.
1: It's May 15th, 2020. Yet another month is half over. Welcome to this week's edition of Green Biz 350. Joining me from her bunker in Midland Park, New Jersey, it's GreenBiz editorial director Heather Clancy. Hello, Heather.
0: Hello, Joel. I can hear you still laughing over your own pun.
1: <laughs> I, you know, sometimes I'm just too clever for my own good. But you, you know. are, you <laughs> are. <sighs> well, <sighs> you know, we we are we are giving them the straight poop, and so that is uh, a week in and week out mm-hmm. commitment, and and so. It's I don't not, know.
0: I think Jim Giles but, might have you beat this week, though. You gotta look yeah, at yeah, everybody. yeah. Jim's mm-hmm. newsletter was
1: mm-hmm. amazing, and uh, the story that he had with his two kids trying out a new, uh you know, let's just call it fake bacon, and yeah, that was a great, great piece. I love it when you know we our our personal lives and our professional lives. Uh, merge in a good way and you can bring yourself into the stories and Jim did that oh so well.
0: Oh so well. So we're socially distanced, but we're being very social. You've been very social this week. Tell me about who you've talked to this week.
1: So I was part of an event called LEAD on Climate. LEAD stands for Lawmaker Education and Advocacy Day. Uh, This is an annual event that uh, was put together by Ceres and a coalition around them. Um, And in the past, uh, most years, well, all the previous years, uh, businesses convene on Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C., and meet with representatives both sides of the aisle to talk about what's on their minds and, and the, the issues of, of and questions of, of concern to them. Um, this year, it was a virtual event, and I have to say it, it worked really, really well. And, and certainly by the numbers, I mean, last year – uh, it was focused specifically on a, a price on carbon, and they had uh, 75 companies advocating for a national price on carbon in Washington, D.C. This year was virtual, as I said, 330 companies involved. Wow. Yeah, wow. it's really quite uh, big and small, lots of big ones. Mm-hmm. Um, I. Mm-hmm had the privilege of uh, two things. One was uh, speaking on Tuesday to the group, which was that Tuesday was the training day where they sort of get briefed on issues and briefed on some of the uh, ways you talk to representatives. Uh, in my case, I uh, interviewed uh, in front of the group Leah Rubens who is a, a policy, energy, and environment policy advisor uh, to uh, Senator Chris Coons from Delaware, um, to talk about the work she's doing and to get her perspective on what's going on in the hill and and how is uh, the mood and, and, and how what's the mood specifically around climate? You know, one of the things that surprised me was uh, sort of was that, and I asked her about this this meme, I guess, that there is a bunch of Republican senators and members uh, of the House who are all about climate action but are afraid to speak up and they're waiting for someone to stick their neck out and take and be the first and then they're all going to coalesce behind him or her And uh, she got said eh, not so much that's not really happening. I mean they may be concerned, but they're still not going to stick their necks out but what is gonna what it is going to take to do that is when uh, not just companies but groups like, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce and the National Association of Manufacturers, the two trade groups she singled out as sort of the the biggest influencers on business in opposing climate action, once they come around and start to speak up, that's going to say a lot more than even uh, you know a raft of Fortune 500 companies marching through their offices virtually or otherwise. So it was an interesting conversation. And then on Wednesday, I got to – Sit in on uh, and listen in. It was on Chatham House Rule. So I can't name the senator uh, from a Northeast state, but uh, it, this was a really interesting conversation that a group of companies had with this senator. And a little bit later in this podcast, we'll play a segment with uh, a couple of people who were there in uh, online uh, this week talking to members of, of Congress and uh, hear what they had to say.
0: So indeed, it has been a busy week, so let's get right down to the week in review. So I'll get us started, Joel, with a piece by Katrina Shum. She is the sustainability officer for Lush, and she's uh, specifically in charge of the North American region, uh, and this is a part of a series actually that we've been running from uh, some partners of ours, Pixera Global, on the circular economy and what it takes to transition. And it's a fascinating piece about why Lush got into really not packaging; it's it's cosmetics in the first place. Uh, I, I I was a fascinating story actually. I didn't know about the the fact that that basically when they this these two founders started making the soaps that, that were the initial product of this company, that they would put them in drain pipes or lunch pails and then just cut the slices up and then hand them in, in wrapped paper to to their customers. And, and that was sort of their packaging concept. And that has become sort of their, 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 their known for that kind of minimalist packaging. And this is a great piece on how they've put together their business model in order to support that. Everything from, of course, you know, soap is one thing, but how do you, how do you package a gel? You have to put it in something. Um, so it, it's, a, it's a wonderful piece about the vertical integration that, that's been required in order to pull this off, but also the fact that, that um, they, they kind of, they think about it as a way of, of, of having a different dialogue with their customers. For example, I didn't know this, but you, there's an app that they use that can point at a product and tell you all the things you'd see on a package because you know as a packaging engineer a lot of people would say oh we can't get rid of the packaging it tells our consumers what's what's on here and we have all these obligations well you can do things differently so it's a wonder there's a tons of ideas in here i'm like i'm i'm like trying to figure out which ones i should bring up because there's so many good ones um but actually let let me gather my thoughts and 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 ask for your impressions
1: well you know it's funny cuz it's this is so old school uh, in some ways. What, what they're going back to, I'll tell you how old school it is. Um, my wife's grandfather, who you know in the old country in Eastern Europe, in I don't know turn of the century or just at, thereafter, used to, uh, as a kid or as a young, uh, you know, teenager perhaps, to make money for the family, would buy big, huge, five or ten pound chunks of soap, and cut it up into small pieces and wrap it in paper and sell it that was how he made money to help support the family <laughs> and so this is a back to the future uh, kind of thing where you know th- this is how we used to package things minimally uh, ba- obviously we're not, they're not cutting up big chunks at least at least except in a factory but, but aside from that it's this is the old way of selling things and so you know, it just sort of brings up an interesting question of what other old ways of packaging should we be looking at and modeling and going back to, or at least a modern version of, of those old ways. Um, there's probably more than a few. And, and I think that's in some ways, whether it's explicit or not, in, in the case of Lush, that's what they're doing.
0: It is what they're doing. What's interesting, even, and, and hey, I don't know how much makeup you use, Joel, but But I'm using trade secret. secret. Um, I don't use a ton of makeup, but I do. And when you buy cosmetics, they come in these teeny tiny little packages and there's all sorts of plastic and they're wrapped and you know, and there's a lot of stuff involved. And so I love the fact that they buck the trend and they're doing well. They're doing well, despite that, you know, they're, people are saying, yeah, you know what, let me buy this bigger pot of, of shampoo I put it in, and, 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 and you know, to, to go to something that Loop, uh, our friends at TerraCycle, are, is doing with their their reusable containers. They're making sort of art out of it, right? It's they're they're designing them in a certain way. There's kind of a this mystique and and sort of a chic to having this thing on the counter, and so they're making it part of their brand and their their entire identity. And and um, but it's a, it really does have some very specific tips about just ways to think about things and that I appreciate a lot. So, yeah, it was a good piece by by Lush.
1: Well, that brings up the piece that I wrote this week because one of the manufacturers of cosmetics high-end packaging is uh, is Eastman Chemical. Um, they have a number of different plastics that they use to create these almost glass-like uh, high-end plastic that you see in, a, I don't know, a Clinique or L'Oreal or one of those brands. I can't name that many. Uh <laughs> and they've been making those for 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 a long time but now this is one of a number of different types of plastic that they're learning how to make from old plastic and so uh, i spent some time in early march just before in fact it was my last trip before uh, we all went home for a while um to kingsport tennessee to visit their headquarters and a plant where they are they're initiating a number of different um, techniques to make plastic out of plastic at the same level of content, uh, same level of quality, uh, continuously, not just a one-time or not just a one-time upcycle. Um, so this was a really a, a sort of a revolutionary way of, uh, of doing something at scale. We've seen smaller companies doing these kinds of things, um, but this is a, probably the first chemical company of any size that's really committed to a closed-loop plastics manufacturing system. So I wrote a fairly long piece about it, uh, sort of talking about the what and the why and the how.
0: Yeah, and I, of course, being the geek that I am, loved it. Uh, <laughs> I've written a little bit about chemical recycling and, and to, the, to your point, about some of the smaller Organizations dabbling in it, but I think what impresses me is this. Obviously, this is a company that needs to do something about it, or if the alternatives arise and they don't do anything about it, they won't be around. So, um, it makes all sorts of sense to me that they would be trying to transition their business in this way. And um, it is a really complicated process. I, I never realized just the the nature of of what it takes and, and how. Well, I, I knew about the mixed plastic thing, right? Because that's that's the big that's the big bu- bugaboo of mechanical right- recycling systems and and the fact that things are are not pure. Um, but they, they're working on that um, problem, which really impresses me. And I, I'm actually surprised I haven't heard them talk more about it. I mean, maybe this is part of their coming out party, if you will. Um, but ha- what... Yeah. Po-
1: yeah. I got the sense, Heather, that that's a really good point, that they are trying to figure out how to talk about it and whether it's safe to talk about it. And uh, and, and I know for a fact that their willingness to uh, host me uh, for a day in Kingsport and give me the tour and sit me down and with all the uh, probably dozen different technical people and and the CEO who I'll talk about in a minute to, to explain this, I think was sort of their, their attempt to stick their head above the parapet and actually talk about this. Um, but, you know, th- this is this probably one of the more complex technical stories I've done in a long time, um, just in terms of how they're uh, these doing these two kinds of things called um, carbon renewal technology and polyester renewal technology, two different ways of taking waste, breaking them down to the molecular level, creating recreating the monomers and polymers that go into new plastics and being able to do that, again, in, a, in an endless loop, um, and so I think this is, you know, a lot of companies, and we've seen this all the time, we see this, you know, every month, where a company's doing something really interesting, they don't want to talk about it, because they're afraid it's just going to set them up for criticism, because it's not proven, it's not at scale, it's not perfect. In this case, it it is uh, in. it's not just an idea, this is something they're doing, it's just scaling up, they haven't uh you know proven it in the marketplace yet but i it it, it se- certainly seems exciting and encouraging and potentially breakthrough and disruptive which is why i wanted to write about it but as i as i said uh while i was there i, I talked with a lot of people and ended up uh spending a, a couple of hours with uh the ceo whose name is mark costa he's a Former management consultant, went to Berkeley and Harvard. He joined the company in 2006 on this leading strategy and then became the CEO in 2014. Pretty engaging guy. And I'll play you a couple of clips uh, from my conversation with him. This is a really short one, just a minute long, about uh, how this uh, idea of, of carbon renewal technology began.
3: The CRT was actually, you know, just a brainstorm among a few of us saying you know, why don't we just put plastic in the front end of this plant and and replace the coal?
1: Um, plastic in the front end of the plant instead yeah, of it, coal, yeah. Yeah,
3: and and we all looked at each other like, yeah, I mean, we, we should be able to do that. I don't know why we didn't think about that 10 years ago or 20 years ago, right? I wish I could tell you there was some sort of magical moment, yeah. but it was literally sort of a brainstorming conversation where it came out of it, and then... Our CTO chased it down and, you know, within eight months we had validated that we could do it and we are commercial, you know, in the fourth quarter of last year, which is really fast in chemical land. know, um, so part of what we're excited about here and, and why I personally got very excited about it was we have an opportunity to prove it's possible, right? There's a lot of negative commentary out there on chemical recycling saying it can't be done, it's in the lab, it's not scalable, it's not economic, you know, all this kind of stuff. And there's a certain part of the community who just doesn't want it to succeed because their goal is to keep fossil fuel in the ground as if going to aluminum glass is better, which is going to use more fossil fuels. And so it's our job to not let that tragedy happen.
1: And then, then I asked him, well, why is this happening now? What's changed in the market? And uh, here's what he had to say.
3: So what happened was, consume, I mean, in the end, solving problems – Requires economics to make the investment, right? So, you know, whether you're a private company or a public company, if you're going to spend capital and put it in the ground, you have to have a return on that investment, right? So, you can't do anything if customers don't want it. So, what changed was the consumer decided that this was important climate change and plastic waste. Both have picked up a lot of momentum really in the last two years from the way, from where we sit. So I think awareness occurred not because of us, right, because of Blue Planet 2 and, and further, you know, understanding and discussion on climate change that so caused a higher degree of awareness and people say, hey, we have to solve these problems. They've moved up to the top of the agenda for, you know, what consumers and voters want. So when you have that, then, OK, now you've got an opportunity for policy, for brands and ultimately consumers to, you know, make a choice to say We're, we all want to sort of solve this problem and we understand it's going to cost some money to do so. And therefore we've got to put policy incentives in place. We have to have consumers wanting to change behavior. You have to have brands understanding there's an economic value proposition to this so that we can all collaborate to solve the problem. That has not existed to some degree. It's still up for debate, you know, on the willingness to pay front, right? So the brand's position is, oh yeah, we want everything environmentally sensitive, recycled content, everything, but we're not gonna pay an extra cent for it. Well, how would you like the infrastructure to get built? I mean, where do you think the money is gonna come from? Consumers are all that different. I mean, you, you can go to Paris, they sign the Paris Climate Accord, yet people are protesting a gas tax every weekend, literally setting Paris on fire. So the consumers want the problem solved, but no one wants to pay for it. And until we cross the, that Rubicon, this is all gonna be a problem. And what people sort of don't seem to understand is, back to carbon efficiency and economic efficiency, let's say you ban single-use plastic. Well, two things are going to happen. One is you're going to make the environment worse off because the carbon footprint of the available alternate materials is worse. Glass, aluminum, steel, even paper, you know, is worse. You know, on a carbon footprint, including water, uh, but even just on a carbon footprint basis, is worse. So, you know, no one seems to be having that conversation, um, but that's just the inconvenient truth. You know, that this material, especially if recycled, right? In other words, not left in the environment is far better than glass, aluminum, and steel or paper. If recycled. Yeah, but even before recycling, it's better. So at current recycling rates, we've done the analysis. Polyester is better than glass and aluminum in Mm. a bottle. If you get to better recycling rates, we get it even better. But even today, at our low recycling rates, we're still better than aluminum. So we have to solve the waste problem, but we shouldn't be making our carbon footprint worse in the process in, in whatever technologies we go to or what other materials people might want to go to. And that conversation isn't occurring. It's just, let's get out of this, and I assume something better will come along.
0: So what do you think it'll take for them to, to scale this?
1: Well, customers, for one. I mean, uh, a lot of what they're doing are, uh, are creating plastics that replace the plastics that they already are making, except that these are now a little bit more sustainably produced. So for example, there's a, a fiber called Naya, N-A-I-A, that they've been selling for a number of years, and it's used in high-end fashion, apparel things, It's and it's made from sustainably managed pine and eucalyptus trends, uh, plantations. It, in other words, it's cellulose-based, base, and, and it's also made with syngas that's produced from fossil fuels. So now they're creating Naya Renew, which is uh, eliminating those fossil fuels and creating those same syn gas synthetic gases from used plastics uh, through a process uh, called reforming. They're they're breaking down the plastics into the gases that they can then use in manufacturing. So, what's interesting about that is they 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 have a can potentially a virtuous cycle where they can take no longer wearable garments and and deep polymerize them if they're polyester depolymerize them and, and back to the molecular level molecular level to make the yarns for new fa- new fabrics new textiles and new garments so they need to have to your question either they need to have customers asking for this stuff and 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 liking it obviously and uh, and realizing that there's a sustainability story that they get to tell and so, uh, you know, we'll see. The same with the, the plastic in your Nalgene and Camelback uh, water bottles that's made from uh, Triton, which is one of their, uh, their products. Um, you know, will that be made from, uh, again, the, the non-renewable parts of that be made from waste plastic or the gases they're, they're from? Uh, we'll see. But this is a process where the market needs to take over. Obviously, Eastman needs to sell it well.
0: Right. So... I think we'll stick with science for our third story, and I'm, I'm going to take us there if you don't mind, Joel. Yeah, please do. Okay, so I love this piece from our friends at McKinsey Global Institute. It's called A Bio Revolution to Heal the Natural World, and it's an essay about a new report that they've released on different bio applications, biotechnologies, um, and it's not just about alternative proteins in the lab. There are so many different applications that they write about in this report. They could have an effect of $4 trillion a year in impact over the next 10 to 20 years. And so as I was reading this, I thought, yeah, sure, cool. You know, as I initially started, um, more shrimp in the lab and, and meat in the lab. But there's so many cool applications that they mention. Uh, for example... To go back to cosmetics, which we've been talking a lot about in this episode, there's a cosmetics company making skincare products using moisturizing oil squ- squalene made from genetically engineered yeast instead of sharks. So it, there's a wonderful applications, that one, um, biomaterials for films like using a display, um, coatings and so forth. Nylons are already being made from genetically engineered yeast instead of petrochemicals. So some great alternatives. Um, so it kind of relates to the story we're just talking about, but um, so many possibilities.
1: Yeah. And, and I and I have to brag a little bit here because uh, in the State of Green Business 2018, so almost two and a half years ago, um, I wrote a piece about... Uh, synthetic biology. And, and you know, again, we're, we were looking at trends that are going to happen in the next couple of years. So two and a half years ago, talking about this exact trend, uh, synthetic biology is really the mashup of biology and engineering. And, uh, and so all of its different applications in terms of, you know, how we power and feed our world, how we design and create the materials we use to make things... Uh, And uh, it's opportunity to revolutionize agriculture, energy production, water filtration, and a bunch of different resource intensive industrial processes, not to mention solving the food shortages or some of the, you know, how do we, you know, the, the whole meatless meat and milk without cows, eggs without chickens and, you know, hamburgers without cows and all that kind of thing. And so... This is uh, something that's been in the works for a while. I always like it when we uh, can identify these trends uh, a year or two ahead of when they start to become uh, better known.
0: a specific climate solution or technology reduce emissions? Is it worth the investment? Boston-based climate tech investor Clean Energy Ventures requires the entrepreneurs in its portfolio to embrace that metric. It even developed a methodology to help them do so. Joining me to talk about the difficult but critically important task of climate impact measurement is David Miller, co-founder and managing director at Clean Energy Ventures. David, welcome to Green Biz 350.
4: Great to be here.
0: So you've spent a a lot of time thinking about the management and and public policy initiatives required for the success of new clean energy ventures. Your MIT doctorate dissertation is even about this topic. So first, the really obvious question, why is climate impact
4: measurement so important? Well, it's hard to do something about what you can't even measure. Uh, Climate change is an existential threat to humanity and a lot of folks say that maybe not even thinking about the ramifications of that if it's an existential threat i mean this is something that could end human society and we're seeing now what happens when you don't take steps to mitigate future challenges we're seeing that all too clearly with the crisis we're in today so if this is a threat that could end human society we we better be doing something to mitigate that threat and the only way we can effectively mitigate the threat is to be able to measure the impact of the steps that we're taking.
0: So now you work with with startups, of course, and, and, and as you decide what, what you're going to add to the portfolio, this is this is an exercise that your team does and, and mm-hmm. actually has your entrepreneurs do. How could more mature companies benefit from this this philosophy?
4: Well, I mean, whether you're an investor, an entrepreneur, or running a mature global company um, everyone has limited resources no one has has infinite resources and we need to put those resources towards what we believe will have the most positive impact and mature companies are constantly making investment decisions of how to allocate their resources and they want to have the best information they can on how to allocate those resources towards the most effective decisions, strategies, uh, and products or services. How, what, what are they going to do with their resources to have the most impact and to be the most successful? So
0: you're involved with a couple of different measurement initi- initiatives, um, and they're, both of them are gaining more visibility in climate circles. Let's start with the one that's more mature, the N roads modeling tool. I'm not sure if I'm saying that <laughs> correct. You'll tell me in a moment. But it emerged from your alma mater, MIT and you are an ambassador for the approach. So what exactly does En-ROADS do, and who should use it?
4: So En-ROADS, that's that's correct, as as far as I know. Um, And what it is, is it's a global policy simulation model that provides anyone, it's publicly available and accessible, uh, with the ability to explore for themselves the, the consequences of how changes in energy, economic, and public policy could affect greenhouse gas emissions and therefore climate and global temperatures with the goal of improving understanding so when folks use the model um, or if you use the model you can propose climate solutions energy efficiency measures carbon pricing uh, fossil fuel taxes reducing deforestation whatever you can think of Um, there's lots of different levers in the model and as soon as you move one of those levers, the approaches are tested using a compilation of pretty much the best scientific knowledge that we have today. It runs tens of thousands of equations in an instant every time you change an assumption and it will tell you what the ramifications of your assumptions are um, and One thing that's really impressive is you can actually set the model back in time, so you can run the model like it's it's eighteen 50 or 1900 or 1980 and you can put in the parameters that were true at that time um, and have it predict what will happen in as far as emissions and global temperature in its future so from 1850 forward or from 1900 forward and the model actually generates what happens in the real world it generates what happened to emissions, it generates what happened to global temperatures. And so what those, the results of those equations, the result of the knowledge in the model is completely consistent with how the world, world has worked up to the state. And though nothing can be 100% predictive of the future, um, it's certainly as validated as it can be for giving us insights of what might happen in the future based on assumptions we're making today.
0: I'm curious, how often would someone run one of these simulations? Like, is this something I would do like repeatedly or once, like one and done?
4: Well, I mean, so so think about the simulation as something that not doesn't necessarily give you a black and white answer um, or make a, a specific prediction. What the model is used for is, is to improve your understanding of the impact of, of different assumptions. And so I think at an organizational level or even a societal level, um, the more folks who can be exposed to this model, the more folks who can be exposed through workshops or simulations or perhaps even playing it themselves, uh, the more folks who are developing a better understanding. So at an organizational level, I would say um, the more that it proliferates across the organization, across Any folks who need to make decisions um, at a societal level across policymakers, um, the smarter that organization or that society can become. Um, And at an individual level, and I think the more time you spend with it, the better understanding that that you develop of the impact of, of policies and decisions that are made today on what the world will be like tomorrow. Is it
0: typically sustainability professionals that are using this tool or what, what's the sort of range of, of, of interest look like?
4: Well, I think it, it goes much further than sustainability professionals because, you know, especially when we're talking about policy decisions, it's the policymakers who, who need to understand this. And perhaps at an even more important level, the voters who are voting for those policymakers need, need to understand this. And at a company level, um, I think the CEO needs to understand this, because um, these, these impact the most important decisions that that company is going to make. So, I mean, certainly sustainability professionals should, but I think it goes far beyond um, it being in, the, in a specific bucket like this, because it impacts all levels of decisions.
0: Is this, is this the tool that you encourage your, your startups to use, or is it a different one that, that they're using on behalf of Clean Energy Ventures?
4: In the context of our startups, um, we get to a much more granular level of wanting to understand what impact they are going to have themselves and understanding the impact of the technology or service that they're developing. How is that technology or service going to reduce emissions? And then how much are they going to be able to scale that in order to have a global impact.
0: So I understand you are also working closely with the Crane Initiative, which is helping put together a way of measuring climate impact on behalf of investors. So tell me more about that project. What is
4: the mission? Sure. Um, The mission of Crane is to have a tool that, as accurately as possible, can assess the potential for a specific technology being commercialized by a new enterprise to mitigate future greenhouse gas emissions. Taking into account the specific market penetration assumptions for that technology or service. So, what distinguishes this approach is a lot of other assessment methodologies uh, look at you know the past or the present. You know what what impact has this technology already had, or what is it having today? Um, what Crane is trying to do, which is quite ambitious, is try to have a full understanding of what impact something it was going to have in the future.
0: And that's coming out later this year. It's not really available yet. Correct? Or right.
4: So, of- so they, they've certainly made it available on, on a, on a beta level. And so we've, we've been helping them test it. Um, and I'm not sure of exactly the, uh, the public release schedule.
0: Fair enough. So now, you, you, to go back to your initial point, you know, you talk about measurement being important for managing, and, and we've, we've all said that at some point, <laughs> probably every day, we all say that. <laughs> what do you think it'll take for climate impact modeling to become more habitual? Like, why, when will this become more ingrained in, in business decisions? Do you see uh, something spurring that, or, you know, what will it take?
4: Well, first, let me talk about how we're using it, and then I'll extend that how it can be more widespread. Is, you know, we actually, inspired by Crane, developed our own modeling tool, which we call CIRC or Simple Emission Reduction Calculator. And we're using this for screening. And so, for basically any company that approaches us um, that's interested in an investment, there's, there's really two pieces of information that, that we try to get from them at a front end and I referred to before is, you know, really how much will their product or service reduce emissions by and, and how many units are they gonna sell, right? How, how many units are gonna get out there? And then we just get a little bit more detail of how the product reduces emissions, how long it'll take to scale up, um, fit it to a standard technology adoption curve, and it gives us, a high-level estimate, a very rough order of magnitude estimate of what the impact of this technology or service can have. And that's a really, really useful information to have at a screening level um, because, you know, it allows us to focus on what are the most impactful potential technologies or services. It enables entrepreneurs themselves to test their assumptions about how impactful what they're doing might be and sometimes actually to modify their approach to become more impactful. And I mean, getting, getting to the broader question of how does this become more habitual widespread is we, we've actually had a number of other uh, investors um, ask us about this as a screening tool. Um, and the more investors who use screening tools like CERC or assessment tools like Crane to have a better sense of how impactful the investments are. Um, And the more organizations and policymakers who start using models like En-ROADS to inform them about the most effective policy choices, the more that the customers of these organizations, whether they be entrepreneurs or voters, will respect and value the decisions that are made um, based on on being more informed and having better knowledge. and then I think it won't take long before any organization or policymakers that isn't using these tools will be placing themselves at a, a disadvantage, right? I mean, what what investor wants to say, hey, you know, we're not using information about what the impact of our investments will be. You know, we, we're not interested in that. Or, or what policymaker would want to say, hey, we're not interested in, in what impact over the long term our our policy decisions are gonna have. And so I think that there's, you know, these types of tools really have the opportunity to become quite widespread, you know, given their ability to improve the decisions that are being made um, at both the investment level and at the broad policy level.
0: Well, thank you, David, for your insight.
4: My pleasure.
0: You just heard from David Miller, co-founder and managing director at Clean Energy Ventures.
5: It's Deanna Anderson, associate editor here at GreenBiz. A few weeks ago, I had a story up on the site about diapers, both how they can be composted and recycled. After that story was published, I learned about Assembly, a Brooklyn-based company that has a line of reusable diapers and a whole diapering system that includes a patent-pending washing powder and creams. I'm here with Liz Terrigiano, Assembly co-founder and CEO. Hi, Liz. Hi. Um, So I kind of just want to dive in. Can you tell me a little bit about how the Assembly diapering system works? Sure. So...
6: We basically my two uh, my two partners and I we launched a diaper service in New York City about eleven years ago and learned so much through that in you know in the realm of laundry science the wants and needs of modern parents and how reu- reusable diapers can and should work and so Assembly was born from all of that knowledge that we acquired over the past decade. And what it is essentially is a complete system. Everything a parent would need to diaper sustainably from birth through potty training. So we have organic cotton diapers. We have diaper covers and storage bags that are made from post-consumer plastic. We have skin care that is both uh, nourishing and healing to baby skin, but also safe to use on diapers that are going to be washed and reused. And then we have our patent pending laundry line, we have a washing powder, and we have agitator balls
5: to help get all of these items clean so that you can continue to reuse them. Can you tell me a bit about like the process of developing this whole system?
6: (laughs) (laughs) I sure can. (laughs) So it was, you know, like I said, we were running this other business for 10 years. And diaper kind washes somewhere between 15 and 20,000 diapers a week that's our that's our new york city service and what we were able to see my partners and i you know even in the early years was what used diapers look like at scale so here we are servicing 300 to 400 families per week we see how much physical space and volume they take up and we just decided we had to do something more about it so we um we we started by starting with, with the big product, which was the detergent. Like, So if people are going to do this on their own, they need to know how to clean them. We know the step-by-step instructions because, again, we're washing 15 to 20,000 diapers a week. We know exactly what it takes to get it done. But we needed a detergent that people could use at home. So that was the first product that we tackled. We worked with um, two different chemists to perfect the formula, have it be something that really could tackle something as dirty as a diaper and, and get it clean while still being safe for baby skin and the environment. Once we had the detergent knocked out, we focused on, uh, you know, arguably the funner stuff, the diapers, the covers, the patterns, the storage bags, um, all the things that get people excited about uh, diapering with a system like this. Uh, Skincare came into play as well. We know, you know, babies have sensitive skin. We're talking diapers. There is the occasional diaper rash. And we knew that we needed a skincare line to both help clean, nourish and protect the baby's skin. And we knew that only certain ingredients could be used in
5: order for them to be fully washable. Your formula, it can work really well on diapers, things that can be really gross. (laughs) Um, I'm curious if you all have ever thought about or like if you think that your system can be applied to other things. Like I'm thinking about hygienic wipes for adults, which are increasingly getting flushed down the toilet. (laughs) Um, Is that something that you all have thought about at all? We are. It's definitely a a future project to expand
6: upon is what we're calling it, you know, our placeholder terminology is our assembly life or assembly home line. But basically diapers are our area of expertise. It's what we've been studying. It's what we've been working with for the past 10 years. But we know that, you know, the the entire concept of living less disposably is something that obviously goes beyond just a two-year-old that's potty training. And so assembly life or assembly home will be us bringing products to market like what you just said to to help older children adults and with home goods so um you know for example our detergent while it's fabulous for washing diapers and that was why you know what it was formulated for it doesn't stop there. Our detergent works fantastic on athletic wear, bedding, towels, anything that you don't want buildup from ingredients in the product to live on the surface of the fabric to be problematic. So if anybody who's washed like running clothes or yoga clothes has found that, you know, they come out of the dryer smelling kind of okay, but then as soon as you start to sweat a little, the workout clothes get like really stinky really fast. And what that is, 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 you know, the bacteria is not being washed away after every wash. It's Binding to some of these additives that are in commercial detergents. So, a clean rinsing
5: formula like ours, not only fabulous for diapers, it works really great for other other articles of clothing like that. Um, kind of want to take a step back. Um, we talked about your other company, Diaper Kind, um, and I'm curious about what kind of um, made the shift for you all to expand um, in launch assembly and like kind of what your original goals were when launching both of these companies like what impact did you want to have on the environment yeah
6: diaper was really just my partner sarah had young kids at the time i had a newborn baby sarah had just recently potty trained her twins and she saw the need she was like here we are we're in a city like new york tons of of eco-minded families looking for a more sustainable way to diaper their babies but they don't have the ability to use reusable diapers because most New Yorkers don't have easy access to a washer and dryer. And so she started working on the idea for a service. It's how do, how do we bring, you know, how do we take the desire for families to do this and, and give them the ability to do so? And so that's what Kind is, is a drop off, pick up laundry service. We provide them with the diapers. We pick them up and drop them off weekly and wash them for them as we were growing diaper kind, we realized that, you know, it's limited by the geographic boundaries of our delivery zone, um, which thereby limited our reach. So as opposed, you know, and and once you start to study areas um, outside of New York city, people do have easy access to a washer and dryer. Most people have one in their home building basement. Uh, So the need for a service was not as prominent in areas outside of New York. And for us to really have, you know, work to solve the disposable diaper problem we knew we needed to reach as many new parents as possible so assembly was our way of doing that it was sort of taking all of the acquired knowledge that we've gotten from diaper kind and putting it into a system that people could do on their own at home which then allowed us to you know serve people globally it doesn't have to be restricted
5: by the delivery zone so you launched assembly in 2019 um, I'm curious about what the growth has been like in the time since you've been um, online, and then also like how has the business changed since the COVID nineteen pandemic started? <laughs> I feel like yeah. I feel like there yeah, was probably some it, changes there.
6: It sure was, but it was. It's interesting because the COVID nineteen changes were almost like that was our growth. Like we we launched Assembly soft launch last fall. And we really just made the announcement to our diaper kind community, our friends and family. Uh, we didn't put any paid media out there, no PR. Um, and we just sort of gave it a couple of months to see what would what would happen as we tested our supply chain and our, our distribution center. And we we just started putting money behind paid social media late February, and then shelter in in New York hit in mid-March. So we, we had about three weeks of you know, entering into hard launch before the pandemic really rocked us all. So, our growth was was during that time, and and we saw a we saw a rise in revenue of about three hundred percent in the first two weeks of sheltering in. Um, people were quickly realizing that sourcing disposable diapers was as difficult as sourcing things like toilet paper and bags of rice. <laughs> And um, they were starting to turn to reusable options and, and taking matters into their own hands. You know, babies go through so many diapers a week. We're talking 60 to 80 diapers depending on their age. So when you're stocking up on goods to prevent yourself from having to go out to the store or you're dealing with supply chain issues from Amazon and and Target because they just don't have enough disposable diapers on the shelf for the way people are buying them and you know hoarding them, Um, So they started, you know, young parents returning to reusable options and and assembly definitely saw that growth. And then that has continued. And then we did our big Earth Day sale at the end of April and really got a lot of, you know, positive growth from there as well.
5: So it sounds like you all have had a good start despite us going through a pandemic right now. Um, My last question, I just. Want to know for Greenbiz 350 listeners or folks who are interested in maybe starting some type of company uh, where the products are reusable um, and kind of diverting waste from the landfill. Do you have any advice for people who are trying to start businesses like this? I do. I think, you know, I think just my personal
6: philosophy is if you want to reduce your impact, you have to reduce your consumption. And that really is just reusable products are where it's at, everything from water bottles to diapers. Um, But when you're designing these products and you're launching this company, sustainability cannot be, you know, the environment cannot be the only benefit. Like the product that you're creating has to function as good as, if if not better than a less environmentally friendly option. Because I, I just don't think... At this point in time where society is, sustainability is enough is, is enough of a cell to get people to compromise function. And, um, and that was really uh, when we were formulating and designing our assembly products, that was always our mission was to not just make a product that's better for the planet, but make one that's better for the user as well. So our assembly diapers are leak and blowout proof. Um, disposables are notorious for messy leaks. And messy blowouts and uh, new parents have to deal with that on a daily basis. So we knew that we had to make a diaper that was better, it was superior. Um, and then it's also more cost effective for them. So assembly will save a family somewhere between $1,500 and 2200 from birth through potty training. So, so I think for anybody out there trying to build a business around environmental sustainability, really just make sure that the products that you're creating
5: are are,
6: are top notch.
5: Liz thank you so much for sharing that advice and also thank you for coming on the Green Biz 350 podcast thanks for having me
1: This week, more than 330 businesses descended on Capitol Hill, virtually, of course, for lead on Climate 2020, part of an annual Lawmaker Education and Advocacy Day for Climate Action. Among the participating companies were Capital One, DSM North America, Dow, Eileen Fisher, General Mills, Mars, Microsoft, Nike, Salesforce, and Visa. Joining me now to talk about it are Anne Kelly, Vice President, Government Relations at Ceres, the event's organizer, and Meg Villarreal, Manager of Policy and Public Affairs at Nestle, one of the event's participants. Welcome to you both.
7: Thank you for having us. Thank you, Joel.
1: Anne, let's start with you. Talk a little bit about the story behind this event. When did it start? Why are you doing it? Uh, Who's behind it?
8: Sure. In 2019, we did an event called Lead on Carbon Pricing with 75 companies, and it was enormously successful. That was pre-COVID. It was it was live and in person. And we had a tremendous response and decided to do the same thing this year. So about six weeks ago, we reframed lead on carbon pricing to be lead on climate so that we could speak to the present moment and talk more about the need for a climate-sensitive recovery, for a resilient recovery, uh, to essentially build back better as Congress spends dollars going forward in in the form of a stimulus over the next several months. We reframed it knowing that long-term... Uh, solutions like carbon pricing are important, but that there were immediate opportunities that companies could speak to.
1: Give me a little flavor of the event you had. uh, As I said, uh, more than 330 businesses, according to your press release. Um, They spoke to a number of members. Uh, Just give a little flavor.
8: Sure. So much to our delight, we had 330 companies join from 50 states, and these were companies of all sizes and all sectors. We had 85 uh, meetings. Uh, we had a 50 meetings with Democrats, 36 meetings with Republican offices, two independents. We actually had 26 members participate, so actual members of Congress speaking directly to, to our uh, companies and the rest were staffers. And that was uh, throughout the day, nine o'clock till about
1: 530. And so the, when you didn't have the members, you had members of their staff. Um, and I, I guess everyone's work was at home in their, in their jammies or whatever. Uh, was that an interesting experience or different from how you experienced this in the past? Obviously a different experience, but what was that like?
8: It was, Joel. It was so interesting. And and you've all been on the screens now with the panel view. And, you know, there were many faces on the screen. But after a few short minutes of people adjusting, you know, dogs or or tables or backgrounds or cups of coffee or whatever they had going on at home, I was really struck by how quickly people leapt to the substance um, at hand and You know, our companies were incredibly articulate about their own goals, their commitment to climate change and how it is unwavering in the face of COVID. And staffers are incredibly uh, well-informed about the issues we're talking about and quite ready to dive into the substance as were members. We had a couple of meetings with members where there were upwards of 70 companies engaging and I was managing the chat box and fielding questions back and forth uh, with the members. They were incredibly candid. They were willing to have their photos taken in the form of screenshots, which you'll see on Twitter today. Uh, And they were incredibly grateful and and continued to ask businesses to come back and to talk to them. So while the mechanics were unusual, I I was just struck by how quickly we could get to the content.
1: Great. Well, um, Meg Villarreal, uh, this is your second time you participated last year. Uh, Why is Nestle participating in this?
7: That's a great question, Joel. You know, this is one of the largest virtual lawmaker education and advocacy opportunities that exists when you want to talk to Congress about climate. Ceres really has done an excellent job of creating a platform for member companies to participate and engage and to have meaningful conversations with Congress on climate change and on our priorities. Um, I myself had 10 meetings yesterday a lot of them were member level meetings. And to be quite frank, it was some of the most valuable conversations we've had with members on climate in a long time. I think the virtual platform created an opportunity for us to have very uh, you know, in-depth discussions about what company priorities are and how we want to see Congress engage on climate going into the future.
1: Well, how is that? Talk a little bit about what you were specifically hoping to see happen or asking members to uh, support.
7: Absolutely. So Nestle has been a company that has always had a long-term view. Um, Our climate goals are really at the heart of our strategy to build a resilient business. Um, We announced a global goal last year to achieve net zero emissions across our value chain by 2050. And we have science-based targets to meet that goal. But some of the strategy that we want to engage to accomplish that is, you know, scaling up renewable energy use in our operations. And that is a key cornerstone piece of the lobbying and advocacy portfolio for Ceres and for the Lead on Climate Day. Um, We also want to develop agriculture initiatives for carbon storage and reforestation and biodiversity that help support our carbon initiatives. And that was definitely a key piece of some of the conversations we had yesterday as well. Um, I will just mention, too, that Nestle is a founding member of the Sustainable Food Policy Alliance with Mars, Danone and Unilever. And uh, we put out a set of climate principles last May. that have five principles as part of it, the first of which is creating a price on carbon. And we really closely aligned with Ceres on those climate principles and have engaged in a number of joint advocacy opportunities for them or with them to promote those climate principles.
1: So what did you hear, Meg, this week that surprised you when you spoke to the members or their staff?
7: Um, It was interesting. You know, I would say the most surprising, one of the most surprising meetings to me was with a member of Congress from Florida who last year, it was a bit of a difficult conversation, particularly around carbon pricing. And so this year we tried a new approach with that office. We didn't go in and lead with the ask on carbon pricing, but wanted to have more of a a general conversation about the companies in his district and how we are prioritizing our uh, carbon principles and our climate principles. And it led into a very healthy discussion on carbon pricing and why the companies in his district were supportive of it. And it was uh, a very productive and, and surprisingly good conversation. And we were really pleased coming out
8: of it.
1: So Anne, what are some of the signs you'll look for so that you'll know that this was a success?
8: Yeah, well, first off, um, I think was at our virtual uh a cocktail party last night when so many of the companies gave feedback similar to what Meg just highlighted, which was that overall uh, they felt that the meetings were far more productive and substantive than they had been um, last year, that members and staffers were much more willing to talk about solutions, they were willing to talk about bipartisan action, they were willing to talk about the larger picture uh, in a way that uh, understanding the urgency of climate in a way that we had not seen as recently as last year. So that was the first thing. Secondly, we'll know it's a success when the as we have ongoing interactions with the very staffers and members we met with. So we follow up now with letters and phone calls and emails. And part of this is building a relationship with the lawmakers to whom we've spoken about next steps. Where do they need support? Where can we have their back as they step out on climate and energy issues? Uh, Where do those conversations go? And then, of course, uh, the, the next sign will be when we do this again. And because we had such a you know, high impact, small footprint model Uh, the company suggested right away that we do this more often. As I indicated, this was an annual event, but there's tremendous support for teeing this up on a quarterly basis and just having a much more robust uh, set of interactions. And we'll know when we see the responsiveness uh, from the members and staffers when it comes to legislation, what are they putting forward and what's the level of support that we're getting to demonstrate that the business voice was heard.
1: Meg, if you had one piece of advice for companies that haven't yet dipped their toe in the advocacy waters, uh, but are interested in doing that, what would you tell them?
7: I would tell them it really makes a difference. Um, You know, I think that opportunities like the lead on Climate Day present a fantastic opportunity to get out in front of Congress with your messaging, but in a way that you're doing it with the guidance of Ceres and with other companies. It can be intimidating going in as your own company sometimes and being the only representative and having those in-depth com- policy conversations with staffers or with members. But Series did an exceptional job of prepping their members this year, of putting together talking points and explaining to companies how they should use examples from their business And I think I was on a number of meetings yesterday with folks who had not participated before. And I think the more that they did it and the more they saw other companies talking about the impact to them and what's important to them, they realized that advocacy is, is founded in passion and a passion for working on behalf of your business and the issues of critical importance to your business. So I would say, um, it, it it can always be scary to try something new, but it is so worth it in the end. You get um, tremendous benefit from using your voice and especially on uh, critical and positive issues like climate.
1: Well, I love your passion on all this and 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 of course from Anne, so thank you to, for that. Um, Anne Kelly is Vice President of Government Relations at Ceres and Meg Villarreal is Manager of Policy and Public Affairs at Nestle. Thanks to you both.
8: Thank you, Joel. Thanks so much, Joel.
0: This episode is sponsored by Villanova University's Sustainable Engineering Graduate Program. Gain tangible takeaways and sustainable business best practices that you can immediately apply to your organization. Offered online and on campus, visit VUSustainableEngineering.com.
1: This week, I had the great good fortune to engage in a one-hour webcast, one-on-one conversation with my friend and mentor, John Elkington. Uh, John, I've known for a long, long time. In fact, John is sort of, I didn't mention this in the webcast, but sort of the reason that I do what I do. Uh, In 1989, I was uh, recruited to create the US edition of a book that John wrote in 1987 in the UK called The Green Consumer Guide. And I was asked to Americanize it, which turned out to be a kind of a rewrite because it wasn't what was worked on the, on, on the high streets in London was not quite right in main streets in the U.S., um, but it was through that that uh, I got connected to John and have really appreciated him all along the way. And, you know, it, before even before that in the mid '80s he founded the consultancy and think tank sustainability. Uh, long before that was a business buzzword. And along the way, he's counseled companies and government leaders around the world. Just uh, one of the most visionary and one of the nicest people I know. So had a conversation. We'll, we'll play you a little clip. You can get a flavor. And if you want to watch the uh, whole webcast, um, and it was video, not just audio, um, just go to greenbiz.com slash webcast.
2: I think one of the fundamental dynamics that has shaped how boards have thought about these sorts of issues over my working life has been the generational uh, shifts that have happened over that time. When I started, people just simply couldn't get it. They weren't programmed to think this way. They didn't think these issues were a priority. And then over time, you saw younger people coming up at all levels. And initially, these change agendas were uh, managed by managers, energy efficiency, environmental protection, whatever it was, Uh, supply chain managers, whatever. Then it uh, we know it went up to C-suite roles, I mean, particularly chief sustainability officers. But now it's starting to get into a different part of the corporate hierarchy. So yes, it's um, CEOs. They've been involved for quite a long time. They've had to be. Uh, Chief financial officers becoming more interested than they were. Investor relations people. But one of the most interesting groups of people I've um, come across in the last sort of two to three years are the chief economists. Now, not every even big company has a chief economist. But when you can find these creatures, they have this, as you know, they have this extraordinarily um, wide and in-depth sense of how economies operate and are shaped by external uh, factors. And I, I, one of the things I'd love to do is get more of these people together to think about and now what? What is it that uh, drawing on historical precedent and, and you know, just imagination, what we might do, uh, what is it that we could collectively do? Um, and most CEOs don't think in that way. Uh, some do, but most don't. Um, so where does leadership come from? I think it very often in, with, with radically different um, mindsets and change agendas comes from the edges of the system so you see um entrepreneurs and innovators and venture capitalists talking about stuff a lot before it gets into the um mainstream and just a final thing i mean i i'm just constantly on the lookout we um you mentioned the book green swans and we're just setting up launching it uh, next week a, a green swans observatory and would love to have green biz's um involvement uh in that but what we're doing is to look around the world for um Experiments, uh, I- I emerging sort of economic activities, uh, national policies, um, and so on and so on, which which have green swan uh, characteristics. Um, and one of the one of the um, companies I'd never heard of, but I stumbled across it uh, through a, a colleague about two days ago, is a Swedish company called H- Houdini, and they're a sportswear company. And the interesting thing about them, as some of your listeners will know, is they've embraced the half-Earth agenda, which um, E.O. Wilson came up with quite some time ago, which says, if we're going to truly achieve sustainability, then we've got to give net half the planet, both uh, land and sea, back to uh, nature, back to wildlife. Now, that's off-the-scale ridiculous, Uh, for most people uh, in business. But I love to see that level of ambition. And when I think of Green Swan Dynamics, that one certainly plays into that space. It's very small. But then Patagonia was small when it started. And um, look at the sort of influence that, that they've had over time.
1: Before I let you go, uh, there's a terrific event you should know about. Next Tuesday, May 19th, we'll be, be presenting Circularity 20 Digital, a virtual event, as you can imagine. At this free half-day event, you can learn about the role sustainability professionals play in accelerating the circular economy. We're gonna have uh, keynote conversations and panel discussions, including two hosted by your faithful podcast co-hosts, Heather and me. Go to greenbiz.com events to learn more and to sign up. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. You can go to greenbiz.com slash 350 to find out more about the organization's stories and events we mentioned this week while you're there. Check out our free e-newsletters. We publish six a week. Go to greenbiz.com slash newsletters and learn about them and sign up. And as always, we love to hear from you. You can email us at 350 at greenbiz.com. Heather and I will be back next week with another edition of Green Biz 350. Until next time, from all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Stay home and stay safe. And as always, thanks so much for tuning in.